as we all know, COVID impacted many things in our culture. And one of the things impacted was weddings. Many weddings were postponed. And those that weren't postponed, that did continue, often had to decrease the number of people who could attend the wedding. Several couples in our church were affected. Our own daughter, uh, as her wedding approached, we had to, to lessen the number of people who could attend. So these weddings had to shrink the invitation list. And I think most people understood, but it was still more than a little awkward, in essence, to say, you know, we're sorry, we're having to redo the guest list, and you were kind of on the list, and now you're kind of off the list. There's just no good way to say that. Now, for the few people who didn't want to come, it might have been a relief, like, yes, I don't have to go to the wedding. But, but for many people, it just feels a little strange to be invited and then uninvited to a wedding. Fewer and fewer invitations, fewer and fewer seats were available. And many people think that Christianity is something like that. That in Christianity, there are a limited number of spots. A few are invited, but we're not sure who those are, or they're really extraordinarily devoted, or quote-unquote good people. So we wonder who actually can come in. Is Christianity this deeply exclusivist group? And maybe you've wondered that as well. And so we wonder, is that true? Are there a limited number of seats in Jesus' kingdom? That's what we're going to see this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew 21. Today we'll be in Matthew 21, starting in verse 33. So the Bible's near you. You can find it on page 827. Page 827. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible, open up a Bible app so you can see the text in front of you, so you can see exactly where I'm drawing these thoughts from. Uh, if you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So we're in chapter 21. Smaller numbers, the verse numbers. We'll start in verse 33 and we'll go through 2214. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. So at the back of the room down here, there's a table. It says free Bibles. There's a stack there. Please grab one of those and take it with you as our gift this morning. So we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Matthew. We're now in these last days of Jesus as he's in Jerusalem before his crucifixion. So Matthew 21, beginning in verse 33. This is Jesus speaking. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing 
and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. The one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. They went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This morning in our passage, we see this emphasis. Don't refuse, but embrace the invitation of Jesus. Don't refuse, but embrace the invitation of Jesus. And we'll look at this text in two parts, the two parables. First, the cornerstone rejected. Second, the invitation received. So the cornerstone rejected, the invitation received, and we'll spend more of our time on the first of the two. So first, we see the cornerstone rejected. Here Jesus tells another parable to the crowd that as we see a little bit earlier in 21-23, that this crowd includes just average people, but also the chief priests and the elders. So the Jewish religious authorities are there listening to Jesus. Now sometimes Jesus begins a parable by saying something like, the kingdom of heaven is like, really tipping them off of what's the focus of this parable. And we'll see this in his second parable. But this morning, as he starts this first parable, he doesn't say anything like that. He simply says, hear another parable. So initially, he doesn't tell us anything about what this parable is about. The listeners have to figure it out as they go along. Now, in this parable, Jesus draws from a common situation of that time where there was a a landowner, an absentee landowner, who who left and leased out his land to some farmers who, who lived on it and farmed it. Here, this landowner planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press, and built a tower. So this generous landover set the vineyard up in every way for success. And what would success be for a vineyard? It would be fruit, to produce fruit. That would be the natural, reasonable expectation of any vineyard that it would produce fruit. The landowner then leases this out to some tenant farmers. He goes away to another country. And at the time of the harvest, the landowner would send someone to to receive the percentage they had agreed upon, the payment for using his vineyard. 
That's what happens in the parable. The landowner sends some servants who go to retrieve this. But in verse 35, we see rather than to pay the amount they owed, instead, the tenant farmers beat one of the servants, kill another, and stone another. In response to this, we see verse 36, the landowner sends other servants, even more servants than the first time. And what did the tenants do to them? They did the exact same thing. So here we see the outright rebellion on the part of these tenant farmers, where they refuse to respond in an honest way. They refuse to keep their word. They respond to the generosity and provision of the landowner with hatred and rebellion. Evidently, they don't want to submit to anyone. They wanted to live as if they were the owner, the ruler of this farm, even though it belonged to someone else. And yet we see really remarkable patience on the part of the landowner who sends servant and then more servants, simply seeking what was rightfully his. You can imagine perhaps if you were one of his servants and the boss says, I'm going to send some more. You're thinking like, well, let's not send more. This didn't work the first time, and especially please don't send me because I don't want to go and get beat up or killed. But then the landowner decides to take one final action. So he sends servants twice. They've been beaten, stoned, killed. What would his last act be? I mean, wouldn't the most reasonable action be to, to hire an army? Send an army in to, to enforce the agreement on these rebellious tenant farmers. So he just sends people in to kill these tenant farmers. That's not at all what he does. Look at verse 37. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. It's a truly stunning act for the landowner to take. They've killed servants. They've beaten servants. They've stoned servants. Now I'll send my son, and because of who he is, they will respect him. It's reckless, and yet that's what the owner does. So what happens? How do the tenant farmers respond? They see this, the son coming. They say, this is the heir. Let's kill him, and somehow his inheritance will be our inheritance. Somehow by killing him, we'll see ourselves as owner of the land. So they took the owner's son, they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Then in verse 40, Jesus asked the hearers, so those who are listening to the parable, he asked them a question. He asked them, when the owner comes, what will he do to the tenants? So those listening respond. So verse 41 are not the words of Jesus, but the, the words of the listeners. And so they say, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death. He'll let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. So it's clear by their response, they, they understand the, the thread of the parable, what's going on here. They understand what's being done is, is unjust. And say, well, this will be the right thing for the owner to do. So they give a reasonable response, but the point is they don't realize really what the story's about. So then verse 42, Jesus takes a turn and then helps them to see what the point of this parable really is. Look down at verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So after painting this picture, Jesus says, this is what you have been doing. 
This story is about you, the listeners. They have been rejecting the cornerstone. So by Jesus' story, he, he corners the leaders. We see verse 45 and 46. They understand Jesus is talking about them. They want to take action against Jesus, but they're fearful of the crowd, so they don't do anything quite yet. So in this parable, the landowner represents God. Jesus draws on the picture from the Old Testament of Israel, often described as the vineyard of God. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, listen to these words and see if they don't echo what Jesus said. Ephesians 5, I mean Isaiah 5, 1 and 2. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So this points to the fact that God had sovereignly chosen Israel to make them his vineyard. And he'd done so not because of anything in them, not because they were powerful, not because they were good, but just his sovereign grace he chooses this people. He delivered her. He rescued her. He generously provided for her and showered grace upon grace on her. Now, who is represented by the tenant farmers in the parables? It is the leaders of the people of Israel, the religious leaders we see in the text, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And who are the servants that are sent to the tenant farmers? These are the messengers of God the various prophets that God sent again and again to his people. The spokesman who would come and, and tell them of God's faithfulness, calling them to repent, turn back from their independent and of their rebellion, urging them to see God's faithfulness. And so these prophets came again and again, and they were typically rejected, sometimes beaten and sometimes even killed. But what did God do in response? He patiently waited he waited through their rebellion. He would send more messengers and more messengers, and he would wait longer, giving them so many opportunities to turn back and to repent. And God's people failed to bear fruit. God had graciously given them all that they needed to bear fruit, like the vineyard in the parable. The fruit, which would have been godliness, increasing faithfulness, righteousness, not perfection, but fruit that flowed from God's grace in their lives. And yet, in the lives of God's people, there was so little true fruit. So God's people rebelled against God. But like them, all people, all of us, also rebel against God. All of us are, are sinful through and through. So in our sinful hearts, we, we turn away from God. At the core of our being, we, we don't want to be under someone else, especially someone who would dictate some aspects of how we are to live in this world. We want to be self-governing. We don't want God to rule over us. We, we do receive his gifts of creation, gifts of life in this world. We, we receive this common grace, and yet we say we don't want a sovereign God who's over us. So all of us rebel. And friend, I wonder for you where, where you may have rebelled against God in the past. Or perhaps if you're honest, where you're tempted or where you are rebelling now. Do you find yourself striving against God in your heart? 
You find yourself wanting to reject his word and his ways. And perhaps there's a particular area of life where there's something you want to do, you have a desire to do. God's word says, don't do it for your own good. And yet you're choosing to go down that, pl- that path of rebellion. Friend, do you fundamentally think of yourself primarily as one who's autonomous or as one who's willing to submit under God? Now in the parable, who does the son represent? Of course, Jesus Christ, the beloved son of God. The very one telling this parable, he's the one sent by God, the the final perfect messenger to God's people. And this parable foreshadows what was about to happen to Jesus just in a few days after he tells this. And in their continued rebellion, they would have him put to death. He would be crushed. And as Jesus stood there that day telling this parable, he knew that was coming. He knew exactly where this was going to lead. Verse 42, Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23. At this time among God's people, they they knew this was what was called a messianic psalm, meaning a psalm that was understood to point ahead to this promised one who was to come, the Messiah, the Deliverer. And so like he's already done, Jesus again quotes one of these saying, you know what this is, it's a messianic psalm, and he quotes it saying, that's me. It's now becoming clear. Jesus is claiming to be this one true deliverer. But Jesus also says this one who is the promised deliverer, God's people were rejecting him. They were rejecting Jesus that very day. So Jesus would be the stone the builders rejected, who then was made the very cornerstone. The stone that was thrown aside by so many would be the cornerstone that that holds all things together. The very new temple of God being created, Jesus is the cornerstone that holds it together. And this idea of the cornerstone would become a common image in early Christianity to explain the rejection of Jesus by God's people, the Jews. Jesus, the Son, is the glorious, saving King. And friends, you see what our glorious heavenly father did. Although people rejected his messengers and his word, he waited. He persisted. He kept sending messengers. And then at the greatest of costs, he sent forth Jesus Christ, the son. And Jesus himself was thrown aside. He was rejected, brutally killed as the ultimate picture of rejection. And yet this was a part of God's marvelous saving plan. For the beautiful, stunning reality is that this son, Jesus Christ, who came, was crushed and killed by these rebels. And through his very death, he was securing salvation, forgiveness, transformation. And salvation for whom? For any and all rebels who would admit their need and turn to Christ by faith. The rebels in the story say, let's kill the son, we'll take his inheritance. And friends, in the most extravagant, extravagant exchange ever, Christ died to save rebels like that and to provide to them an even greater inheritance. As all Christians are called a joint heir with Jesus Christ. That's how kind and gracious God is. Rebels made children of God. Rebels made heirs of God. All this through Christ. Friend, you see the love and grace of our Father. If you're a Christian, you see what God has done for you in Christ. 
We see the patience of the landowner in the text. Friends, how much more do we see the patience in God's response to the rebellion of his people? Throughout the generations, he waited patiently. Again and again, waited in patience. And friend, he continues to relate to us that way today. He patiently pursues people like us. He patiently sends messengers to share this good news of Jesus Christ. And so the question for each of us is, what will we do with the messengers of God? What will we do with the message of God, the scriptures that we have? Will we receive it? Or will we only receive it selectively for the parts that will affirm what we already want to do? Will we reject the parts that press on areas that we may disagree For if you're a Christian, is there honestly a place today where you're rejecting God's word because it doesn't fit what you've already decided you want to do? Or it doesn't fit what what our culture says is good and right? For if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you would give a part of your Sunday morning to be with us here today. And it's our hope that you'll see the beauty of who Jesus Christ is. There's this gracious, patient Father sent forth the Son that the greatest of cost, he might provide this salvation. A gift for any and all who receive it by faith. And we don't think that there are accidents in this world. So, so we actually don't think it's an accident that even you're here today. But that God brought you here, that you would hear of God's love for you. And friends, for those of us who are Christians, let us be reminded again of God's patience and his kindness, his persistence towards us. And let's pray that we would have patience for those in our lives around us who need Christ as well. If you've been a Christian for very long at all, there are people in your life who, who you want them to know Christ, but some of them have shown little or no interest in it. And so maybe you've tried to share Maybe multiple times, trying to point someone to Christ, but with little or no interest. Maybe like me, you have a family member who you've prayed for for decades. And across these decades, at least in in my family, it it seems there's less interest, not more. How tempting it is to give up, to lose patience, to not endure. So friends, let's pray that God would give us patience more and more like our patient father. And as a church, we must have patience and persistence. God has placed us in this city for the sake of the gospel going forth to those around us. So let's persistently, patiently, diligently move forward with this good news. Friends, we should also see the sobering warning for those who reject Jesus, those who reject the cornerstone who trip over it, they will face judgment from God. So God does patiently and persistently pursue us, but there is a final day coming. Jesus' critique of Israel is that although God had given them everything they needed in order to bear fruit, that they had rebelled and they were a fruitless people. Look down at verse 43. He said, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. See, the expectation of God's people was not perfection, but that they would live in trust and reliance on him, that they would pursue godliness and faithfulness. But he says, Jesus says, now in his coming, there would be a new people, 
And this new people will be some from every nation and tribe and tongue. No longer one ethnicity, but, but all who trust in Christ. And God's desires that those a part of this new people, his kingdom, would also bear fruit. The Holy Spirit dwells in each and every Christian. And friend, as you trust in Christ, relying on him, seeking to pursue godliness, he produces in you, in us, increasing godliness, not perfection, but progress. Produces in you, in us, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and so much more. We are to bear fruit. Now, fruit bearing is not done in order that we might somehow earn salvation. We don't want to be confused on that. So it isn't if you have enough fruit, then God saves you. It is that God saves us by his grace, and then flowing from that great salvation, he produces fruit in you, in us. So fruit is not earning, but it is evidence. If I'm truly in Christ, there will be, there must be, there should be some fruit in our lives. So for the Christian, that's why we really need others in our lives, in the local church, to, to help us. For times we might be discouraged and think, I, I don't see any fruit in my life. Do I truly know God? We can have some brothers and sisters who can come along and say, oh, I don't think you're perfect, but I, I do see this fruit, and I've seen that fruit. I see the evidence of God's grace. But we also need people who love us enough that if there were an extended season where there was an absolute absence of fruit, that they would be able to help us think through. If there's no fruit at all, perhaps I don't truly know Christ. Perhaps the absence of fruit should call me to, to turn to Christ by faith, that I might know this salvation that then would result in true fruit. So friend, let us live empowered by the Spirit in, in such a way that there would be fruit in our lives. The cornerstone was rejected by many, but in God's grace, he pursues sinners like us, which brings us to second, the invitation received. The invitation received, and don't be alarmed, this one will be much shorter than the first. Jesus then tells us this second parable. He begins in verse 2. Look what he says. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So at the outset of this parable, Jesus says, this is what the parable is about. This parable is intended to teach us something about God's kingdom. The king in the parable was giving a wedding feast for his son. Invitations were sent out. And that day, there was a, a two-step process. An invitation was sent. People would respond and say, yes, I'm planning to come. And then messengers would go out again to confirm that you're coming. Sort of like an Evite you might get now. You know how those are that they just keep hounding you. I mean, they keep reminding you over and over. Like, remember you said yes. Remember, no, you said yes. Remember it's tomorrow. And you said yes. And it keeps coming over. And I love those Evites. Yeah, those are great. So that's sort of what happens here is the, the invitation is given and then these servants are sent out to give a reminder. But notice what happens. He goes and says, are you coming to call those who are invited? But they wouldn't come. So verse 4, he sends out more servants. He says to tell the people this, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But still, people didn't pay any attention. We're told one went to his farm, another went to his business. Then some seized the servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So people were rejecting this king and his invitation to the wedding feast. Some because of other interests. Others, it was a sheer violent rejection. The king in the parable was angry and sent troops to punish them. 
And then notice what happens in verse 8. He said, the ones invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. He says, look, those people are not coming. Go out in the streets, invite everyone. And those servants went into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding was filled with guests. So what's the point of this parable? Well, the wedding invitation portrays the invitation to the kingdom of God, to Jesus' kingdom. And in this kingdom, there's a great promised wedding feast to come in the new heavens and the new earth. We see described in Revelation 19, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And this invitation is to that wedding supper and is to life eternal with God and fellowship with him. So the invitation is, come to this joyful feast. Come and find life. And this was the ministry of Jesus as he walked the earth, inviting people, saying, the kingdom has come near, the king is near, come and experience this free gift of salvation. And friends, this invitation is freely held out to all, and it is all of grace, only grace, it is free. But there are many responses to this invitation. Some who say yes, but don't actually respond. Others in fact, many who get distracted by other things, like the one who went to the farm, the one who went to the business, and in others who are passionately and even violently rejecting Jesus. But our Father says, go and invite all who will come. Whether they're seen in this life as good or bad, go and invite them. Friends, this is Christianity, an invitation into grace freely offered to any and all, but it must be received. It must be embraced. It's not sufficient to have the invitation, but not to respond to it. But the, any and all can respond, embrace, take hold of this glorious invitation. There's an interesting turn at the end in verse 11 to 14 that you likely noticed when I read it. The king comes in and there's a man there who has no wedding garment. So the king asked him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? The man was speechless. He couldn't answer the king. And the king had him thrown into outer darkness. So all were invited. What was necessary? Be willing to come under the king's terms. No cost to get in. But the one term was, do wear a wedding garment. That was the only expectation. Come and enjoy this glorious banquet. Simply wear a wedding garment. So the good news of Jesus Christ is held out to any and all. It's available to all. What must one do to access it? We too must come on the king's terms. And what are the terms of the king? Admit you need a Savior. Turn to Christ by faith. So we turn away from lesser things, from other things, and we turn to Jesus. Salvation is found in him alone. So we must not try to enter through our own efforts. We must not try to enter through cleaning ourselves up. We must not try to enter through our own religious devotion. Now, the way the king has set it up is you can only come in if you don't bring anything. You can only come in if you admit you have no right to be here. You can come in, though, if you 
confess Jesus as Savior and King. And any and all who do that are welcomed in. That's the way the King extravagantly has designed it. We come empty-handed and we're welcomed in. So friends, this is the good news. Salvation is available for any and all who receive it by faith. But it must be embraced. It must be received. So Jesus concludes, verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. So in the parable, many heard the call, many heard the invitation, but, but only a few responded to it. And by that demonstrating that they had been chosen, many had been invited to the banquet, but so many refused to come in the end. And friends, this invitation is held out to every single one of us today. Salvation is available as a free gift for any and all who would admit their need and turn to Christ. So friend, if you're not a Christian, I wonder, have you considered Jesus? And if so, might you trust him by faith today? It's possible this is the very first time you've heard this good news. And if so, we're especially glad you would join us today. And we just want you to know, we, we want you to feel safe to the extent you're ready to explore Jesus. That might be, you just want to come back next Sunday or a future Sunday. Just want to kind of be anonymous to the extent that you're able to. We would welcome you to do, to do that. Maybe you say, you know, I, I want to know more, so I, I want to come weekly. Or you might be at the point where you're ready to talk with someone. We'd love to arrange that. Or if you'd like to read the Bible with somebody, just to look at the text together, we'd welcome you to do that. Now, for some of you, you've been thinking about this for months, maybe even years. And at times, it may have seemed like you were very close, and other times, distracted. The busyness of life has taken over. Perhaps it's been a very long time that you've been around faith, but have never come to trust in Jesus. So if that's where you are, let me urge you today. There's an urgency to this message. So won't you turn to Christ today by faith and receive this free gift that Jesus has provided? For those who are Christians, the, the future promise of this banquet, the, the fully realized future reality of the joy-filled kingdom of Jesus shapes our lives here today. Christians are to be a joy-filled people. In the midst of a sad, anxious, lonely world, we are to be a hopeful, optimistic, joyful people. We don't deny the brokenness of the world. We endure real suffering, but there is a future hope that, that overcomes that, enables and empowers us to walk through that. And we who've received this invitation are now called to engage in inviting others to the kingdom. And the good news is there is abundant room there's room for every person who you would want to invite that they might enter into the kingdom of Jesus. For all who respond to and come to the banquet, we are given an unlimited number of invitations that you can extend to others. If you've been married or been a part of a wedding plan, there's often you know, a sort of number you're trying to get to. X number of invitees. And so there's some negotiation from different families. Uh, you know, who can we fit in? Who can we not? How can we afford to, to do? But there's just a limited number of seats in the venue or in your wallet that limits what you can do. Well, friends, the good news is in the kingdom of Jesus, there, there is no limitation. There's no limit on the venue. There's no limit on the resources of the grace of God. So therefore, friends, we can, in fact, are compelled to go and invite any and all 
in the language of the text, we, we go into the street. It's not our job to figure out, do we think they'll come? Do we not? That's not our role. Our role is to go and hand out an invitation and say, I would love to tell you more about Jesus. I'd love for you to come here and hear more about Jesus. I'd love to read with you about Jesus. And friends, this task we're brought into is urgent because eternity matters and because none of us know how long our life will be. And so, friend, you as a Christian can make this invitation in any number of ways every day of your life. It might be with a friend or a coworker where you begin a conversation asking them about their spiritual beliefs. Just an open-ended conversation. It might be that tomorrow in a class, a friend asks you, asks you what did you do on Sunday morning? And by simply explaining that you went to church, that, that might be a first step to opening up about this that's a part of your life. It might be if some progress happens in a relationship, you might ask a friend if they would want to read the Bible with you. Or you might invite them to a social gathering with some other Christian friends because you might be the only Christian they know. So you think, I'd like for, to get them around some others who also follow Jesus. A next step might be an invitation to join us on any Sunday at a time like this. Or in light of where we are in the calendar year, it might be thinking ahead to two weeks from today when we celebrate Easter. Probably second only to Christmas Eve, many in our culture at least think to some extent about spiritual things and about Christianity because of this holiday in our culture. So a surprising number of people would probably be open to an invitation because it's Easter. If you said, hey, I'd love for you to join me on Easter, who knows how many people might respond in the affirmative if we didn't make the decision for them and we extended the invitation to them. So friend, you might pray and consider who you might invite two weeks from today. And as a tool related to that, we have some postcards at the back, a small postcard that will fit right in your wallet. Um, actually, it won't fit in your wallet. Uh, a postcard for you to take that you could pass on that would tell about one an Easter egg hunt on Saturday and then our services on Sunday. So you can take one or many of these and share it with a friend. And second, connected to it, we have this little book called Is Easter Unbelievable? Written by Rebecca McLaughlin, who's a part of our church. It's just a really brief, helpful, addressing some of the skeptics', skeptics, skeptics questions about Easter. So one, you can take just the card. You can take the book. You can give both. You can take a stack but these might be an easier way to extend an invitation to invite someone to consider Jesus. Friend, if you've not considered Christ, we pray today you would consider the invitation of Jesus. And friend, if you have, if you're a Christian, may we be increasingly a joy-filled, fruit-bearing, invitation-sharing people. Might that be so in us? Now, today is a means of response. There are several ways to respond. One of those is the connection card. So maybe there's some things you'd like to know more about. Uh, you could check there if you'd like to talk more about Christianity. Maybe there's some ways that we could pray for you. We'd love to do that. And, and if you're thinking about inviting a friend, if you'd want to just write that on the card, we'd love to pray for you and for them for the invitation. Whether you want to give us their name or not, we would love to join in praying with you for that.